you have your Bibles this morning, actually, I'm going to ask God to bless this part of the journey too. Let's pray. Lord, we want to be like Jesus. Thank you that we could get a picture of him so close and personal. Bless us as we look into his power to heal. In Jesus' name, amen. Beginning a series of sermons on the healing power of Christ. This morning, I'm going to talk to you about the healing presence of Jesus. I'll be speaking on different dynamics of healing, physical, mental, spiritual, and social. Over the next four, five, six weeks, we'll see how long it goes. And then when we come to our 10 days of prayer in January, we are going to organize a special prayer service. I've had a person approach me as of late who shared both a testimony and a request. The testimony was how a season of prayer provided spiritual strength and a measure of deliverance for them with a request that we consider a special prayer experience for this individual. As God put in my heart this journey about healing, He merged into it as a function of prayer this idea that we ought to take more seriously the invitation of Jesus to receive the healing touch. So we're going to go through this series. We're going to understand what God's plan is. We're going to understand what the laws that preside over these types of health are. We're going to seek to bring our lives as far as it's in our power through the Holy Spirit into compliance with that, those uh, modules of healthy living. Then I'm going to be asking our elders to fast and pray with me before we pray for you. And on one of those two weekends, I'm not sure which one it'll be, I have to work out the scheduling, but either the second or third weekend in January, we will have groups of elders and perhaps deacons and deaconesses as long as they're willing to make the journey of spiritual preparation. And if you know someone, you may be suffering right now with something physically. I have no guarantee of what deliverance will look like for you, but I do know what peace looks like. And it could be that mentally you feel like the devil's been uh, harassing you or spiritually. It could also be that socially you found yourself running into a wall and you sense God's calling you to a greater freedom socially. And of course, spiritually, God wants us all to come to higher ground. We can't go there without His power or His leading. So I'm inviting you to make this journey with me. If you're away for the holidays, I encourage you, uh, tune in on YouTube and watch the message, messages, and let's see how God's leading. But I truly do believe God is going to do some miracles, and those miracles may not be known to the rank-and-file public of the village church or the world. But I'm inviting you. If something's been on your mind and you can't shake it and you don't want to shake it, you want heaven's peace and a sense of his presence, consider joining us as we set aside special time for prayer. Take your Bibles this morning, if you would, and open them up to the Gospel of Mark. I've entitled my message, The Healing Presence of Jesus from Curse to Cross and the Smitten Rock. Mark chapter 2. As we celebrate the incarnation, we need to stop and understand what great divine purpose and focus and energy has been placed on this little globe. Jesus came here when he had no compulsion to come here except the compulsion of love. It is the heart of Christ that draws the sinners and the sin sick to himself. And this morning, what humanity gets to celebrate is the fact that Jesus, through the merits of a life of suffering and sacrifice, becomes our elder brother in a way that he never would have been had he not been a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. I don't know what grief you're carrying. I don't know what worries on your heart or mind. But you need to know something. Jesus had to walk the same walk of uncertainty and potential fear except for one thing, he knew in whom he believed. And yet to think that Jesus was never tempted to be afraid or to feel insecure would be to remove him at some level from our human experience. Jesus operated out of the land of Galilee. 
He had a special place where he liked to reside. That was Peter's house. And as we open the book of Mark to chapter 2, we find him there. Mark chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. When he came back to Capernaum several days afterward, it was heard that he was at home. He was in Peter's house. The scriptures do not come out and clearly state this, but as you study it, it becomes more clear. He was actually in the home of Peter. This was where he resided when he was in this area of Israel. Many were gathered together there, verse 2, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. The problem was not everybody could hear. There were people close up who had privilege. That was the scribes and the Pharisees. But the rest of the people hoped for a window or a doorway or a corner of a room. It was exceptionally crowded, a bit bustly. And in, in commentating, Ellen White says that Jesus was teaching in the house of Peter, his disciples close about him, and there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. So they came a long ways. They were spies. Outside thronged the multitude, the eager, the reverent, the curious, the unbelieving. In other words, everybody was there. And the power of the Lord was present to heal. But the Pharisees and the doctors did not discern the Spirit's presence. They felt no need and the healing was not for them. Well, you say, Pastor, they weren't there to get healed. You're right. But they did need it. And it's very possible this morning that some of you came thinking, there's nothing wrong with me. Some of you may have came thinking, everything's wrong with me. And somewhere in that great spectrum of life, all of humanity lines up. There'll be moments in your life when you say, I am the pit. I'm not just in the pit. I'm just a black sucking hole for life's problems. I'm a magnet for everything despicable and detestable. And yet you're here. And others come here. They may not for a moment think that the message was going to really be for them. It'd be for the guy or the gal down the pew. But this morning, we all need to understand that everybody in the room needed a touch from Jesus. They all needed the healing, some differently. But there was one man who was being born to the house who needed two types of healing. Verse 3, and they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. Something had begun to happen in the mind of this hopeless individual. He had been to the scribes and the Pharisees, and they, like many others, of which there is scriptural reference and establishment, had directed that his sin was his own fault. And because of that, there was no mercy for him. Now, I want all of you parents to do something real quick and ask yourself a question. How many of the troubles that your children have did they create for themselves? You have your meter? Is it pegged way over here at almost all? There's something about this I think we need to stop and understand. This man did create his own sinful condition, at least physically. Perhaps he was rebellious. Perhaps he was proud and arrogant. What you need to know in this story is that even when you dig your own hole, there is still divine love to reach in and pull you out. Friends, most of us dig our own holes. Now, I've mentioned before that my wife at the age of 18 had cancer. Some of you have cancer. Some in the first service had cancer. Did you bring it on? Who could know? But it doesn't matter. I know that my mother and father-in-law lived very healthy lives, and I know my wife did too before she was my wife. But she still got sick. But most of our sins do lead to problems that we'd like to be free of. The problem is the sin that created, the sin that was motivated by the desire has created a returning desire. And some of those things that we loathe, we still kind of like. Can Jesus deliver from this? Yes. Christ is able, more than able, to take the human heart and turn it and transform it from stone to what? flesh. Stone hearts are cold. They can't beat. There's nothing for the world in a stone heart. 
But I want you to understand, stone will be a significant part of this message before it's all over. Remember, I've entitled it, From Curse to Cross and the Smitten Rock. God can make things that aren't alive live. He can take the inanimate and animate them. He can take a, a soul that is dead in trespasses and sin, and he can give the gift of repentance. He can give the gift of enmity against sin. Now, I can't keep going back to where the sin is and keep saying, I want to be free. This is why the Bible says flee, especially sexual sin. But there's liberty in love, and the love starts in Christ, not in you. The power of Jesus to set us free is a power that flows from him to us, creating desire first and then strength of purpose. This man was a paralytic probably because of some type of besetting sexual sin and he was lame. He couldn't even carry himself anymore. He had been told it was his own fault. He knew it was true, but he still had heard about Jesus. What an awesome God. So powerful that he could lay his hands on a leper while the disciples are trying to run scrimmage just imagine them as big linebackers trying to stop the leper from getting to Jesus. But you know what? It was a non-touch game. And as the leper got closer, they split and the leper fell right at Jesus' feet. First miracle after the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 8. And the Bible says, as the man who couldn't even look into Jesus' eyes, he was breaking all the social laws, says, Lord, he saw something in Jesus. Lord, if you're willing... You can make me clean. And Jesus could have said, I'm willing. But Jesus reached out and touched him and he said, I'm willing. And everybody else's eyes are popping out of their heads and their jaws are dropping down because this means Jesus is now unclean. Except that he's not. Because he's the fountain of all purity and power and affection and nothing can stick to Jesus. He is the source of purity and the man is restored and everybody is in a moment of absolute jubilation and consternation all at the same time. This man being led down through the roof is the one who suggests that we go up top because I need in. Imagine getting a man on a litter up a ladder. Some of you work on ladders. This is no small feat. Imagine once you get him up there trying to figure out where in the house is Jesus. Imagine after you start pulling the tiles off and digging away whatever they have for waterproofing. It says they dug a hole. Imagine the dust falling down through the ceiling onto the listeners and the speaker. Jesus knows what's happening. Spirit of prophecy says Jesus was drawing this person to himself. Listen, nobody ever finds Jesus unless Jesus finds them first. That's how it works. You may finally come to a point in life where you're not blind and your interest is after God, but nobody finds Jesus unless Jesus finds them first. He knows where everybody's at. This man had been drawn to Christ. And as they're letting him down through the roof, everybody is wondering who has the audacity to destroy this important meeting with this unlettered but significant celebrity in Galilee. And finally... There he is, hanging in a litter in front of Jesus. Verse 5, Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, he's looking right at him, but I need you to know something. Before he says a word, volumes have been spoken. There is no irritation on the face of Jesus. There is no impatience in the tone of Jesus. There is no hesitation in the conversation with Jesus. Jesus knows everything about the man. He has drawn him into his presence and he is glad he had the confidence and the faith and the desire to go as far as he did. And so as the ropes come down through the roof and the man is hanging there in his sheet, Jesus looks into his face and the man is already better off. Friends, the Bible says Jesus became Emmanuel, God with us. Not God at a distance, not a solution lobbed over the celestial field goal post to score a few points in the eyes of the onlookers. No, God came in 
to our existence. And God had drawn this man in, and Jesus' eyes meet his eyes. And in one, one recollection of this story, Jesus says, Son, family term, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. The message that nobody would give him, the promises of God, the, the evidence of the character of God, all run over, thrown under the bus in an age of institutional control. But this man is told what he had always worried about the most is that he would die an outcast from God. And Jesus looks into his eyes and he says, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven. Some of you don't believe that. Some of you believe you've got to show God you really are serious. Some of you don't understand what a gift is. Some of you don't know that your best righteousness is filthy rags until you get really filthy. And when you get really filthy, then you know, sort of. And sometimes what's really in the mix is more shame about what I did than actual spiritual remorse and repentance. God alone can give you that. And you don't have that until you know that God loves you at your worst moment. God drew you to him at your worst moment. God was pursuing you in the activities that were creating your worst moment until you understand that there's not one fraction of a molecule to add to the gift. You'll never ever really be able to be sorry because sorrow of a godly order is built around a knowledge of the power of love. Real repentance happens in the context of a knowledge of the love of heaven. But Jesus' words don't make everybody accolade. Not everybody's applauding what Jesus said. Some of the scribes were sitting there and they started thinking to themselves, who does he think he is? Why does this man speak this way? Verse 7, he's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Ministry of Healing and the Desire of Ages tell us that uh, they broke eye contact with Jesus and they were, they were giving each other the eye. And everybody got it. He doesn't have any authority to act like this. But Jesus knew their reasoning. Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Now, I need you to know that it's, it's easier for a man to say, Take your bed and go home. But that's not the easier option for God. Man can never forgive sins. Man can announce that there's forgiveness. Praise the Lord. That's your job. It's my job. But the truth of the matter is, the one who spoke the world into existence could speak life into those atrophied muscles and the, that sagging skin and that lead-colored look on his face. God could spread pinkness and freshness and vibrancy and life and with a word because the molecules obey his voice. Whether it's clouds that flee away and waves that settle down or whether it's the dynamics of physiology, when Jesus talks, the world listens at least the non-human part. And Jesus turns to him and says, since you're wondering and since you're doubting, since you won't respond to the Spirit, and remember, Spirit of Prophecy tells us they weren't subject to a sense of the Holy Spirit's presence. They didn't think they needed any healing. No wonder they didn't accept it or him. But he said, I want you to know, because I do have the power to do this, I'm going to show you I have that power by doing this. Take that bed, stand up, and go on home. And when he does, the crowds part 
And on the way out, the man is singing, praise God, hallelujah. He is singing the praise of Jesus. What's it leave Jesus with? It leaves Jesus with spies who came not to learn, but to critique. And they went away and with one desire to destroy Jesus. You see, Jesus wore a big target on himself all the time. It was in the shape of a cross. He was headed towards it from the very beginning. Now, if the man who had been let down on the mat had only heard the words, sons be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven, that would have been enough. That would have been enough. That's what he wanted most. Spirit of prophecy tells us we need to combine the spiritual and the physical. Listen, we're living in a day when it's not our job to look like one of the other good non-governmental offices that go around doing good. We do our good in the name of Jesus. We do our good with the spirit of Jesus. We don't push it on anybody, but we're not embarrassed to the fact that we're not just offering what everybody else can offer. We're offering a drink from the fountain of life. Our very presence is to carry with it a completely different atmosphere. But this world has tried to make us embarrassed that in religion, somehow, if we were proclaiming Christ, it was something in it for ourselves, corporately. Listen, you work for this church for absolutely free. All those other non-governmental offices that are doing their work, most of their people are paid. You work for love. Don't be embarrassed about Jesus and don't be embarrassed about the fact that every human being is sin sick and God needs to make you sensitive to what they need. I was at the dentist's office this week, two days ago. Before I could sit down in the chair, the hygienist said to me, if my phone buzzes, I've got to stop. She said, I'm sorry. Well, you know, I've had my teeth cleaned many, many times, but I've never had the hygienist say, I, I have a phone call I'll have to take, so it doesn't matter to me where we are in the process. Now, she was very polite about it. She explained to me that her youngest was having serious headache problems. She cleaned my wife's teeth the day before. She put the dots together. You know, she had laid in one of those big tunnel things and they'd done a scan of her brain and they found something. The daughter didn't even know yet. I tell you, the lady was worried. Since I'm a father of four and have a daughter, since I've had those moments when I've wondered, is my child going to be okay? My heart was immediately knit to the worry burden she was carrying. You can't talk a lot, you know, while they're scraping and polishing and all that. But afterwards, when I sat up on the chair, I said, could I pray with you? Not a moment of hesitation. I know the name of the daughter. I know the name of the hygienist. I'm going to keep praying. This world needs something more than a good doctor. Praise the Lord for good doctors. This world needs the assurance that in the midst of all the insecurity and the uncertain things, there's one who cares for us and will go through them with us. This man would have been okay if all he knew was that his sins were forgiven and he was going to die. We're all going to die. But there's something about dying, thinking you messed it all up and you're not worth saving that's different than realizing I can die knowing I'm loved and I'm going to look into the face of God someday. I was once sick in India. I haven't had people lay hands on me for sickness, maybe but one time. I was in a hotel room in India. I was there with a group of people doing health talks and sharing good news. And as the Sabbath came on, I got sick. I was the leader of the group. I really wanted to go with them on Sabbath, but there was no way. I can remember quite vividly them coming into my room and surrounding my bed. I had hands on my head and hands on my arms and hands on my leg, and I don't know if I had hands on my feet. I want to tell you, their prayers meant so much to me, but they didn't heal me. They went off to worship, 
I laid in the bed. I slowly got better. But there was a real sense of heaven's touch in my heart. If he would have only heard that his sins were forgiven, he got that message first because that's what he really wanted. The other message was for the scribes and the Pharisees who didn't believe, and of course he was glad for it too. He never expected in a million years that God was going to heal him, but he did want to see this person who was full of mercy, sympathy, and tenderness. He did want some kind of assurance from somebody he thought was the real deal that God was actually compassionate and there was forgiveness. And Jesus said, your deepest hopes are true. Take your Bibles and turn over to Genesis chapter 3. Let's go back to those self-made problems. The very first one was very self-made. Genesis chapter 3, we'll start in verse 7. She took the fruit first. He took the fruit second. For a moment there was an exhilaration. Don't tell your kids that sin isn't fun. Make sure you tell them it's fun for a little bit. And then it's not. The eyes of both of them, verse 7, were opened. Satan didn't tell a complete lie. Their eyes were both opened. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves a loin covering. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and he said to him, where are you? And Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Talk about a self-made problem. Oh yes, God comes walking in the garden. They can tell by his stride and his cadence I don't know if the ground shakes when God walks or what, but he's walking through the garden and they can tell it's him. And the first things they think of is, we've got to hide. So they run back into the recesses of their beautiful garden home and they're peering out between the leaves and God says, where are you? And they say, we're over here, but we don't want to come out and you see us. What they didn't know is, Nothing's hidden from God. Who told you you were naked? They told themselves. They now saw. What I want you to realize is that when a person does what's wrong, God doesn't turn and run away. God follows after while they run away from Him. God didn't come to this world so that we could spiff ourselves up and present ourselves. He came to this world so that we might be transformed back into the image of His original creation by the power of His presence and His love. God pursues us in the midst of our iniquity, as offensive as it may be. Satan from heaven couldn't fathom this. He thought that if he got us to sin, he'd separate us from heaven. What he didn't realize is that when he created a snake pit and a cesspool, God would jump in. As the cries for help from the flailing human race while they're choking down filth of their own making, Jesus jumps in. This is who God is. He still does it today. You can't clean yourself up and make yourself better before he does it. All you know how to do is flail. Jesus says, I'm the lifesaver. Take your Bibles and go over to the book, Exodus. Next book, chapter 17. This world becomes a wilderness. Everything that was in balance becomes out of balance. God delivers his people and takes them on a journey. Here they are approaching Mount Sinai. They've seen miracle after miracle, but they're about to see another. Exodus 17. They're in the 
region of Rephidim. Exodus 17, verse 1, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sin, according to the command of God, and they camped at Rephidim, and there there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses, and they said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses, and they said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they'll stone me. God, how far are you going to push us? Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you here on the rock at Horeb. Horeb is another name for Sinai. And you shall strike the rock, and the water will come out of it, and the people will drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. Listen, friends. God's grace had delivered the people from Egypt. God's grace has provided food every day, twice as much on Friday, so there was no gathering on Sabbath. And before the law is given, God's fountain is going to flow out of Sinai. You need to understand something. Before the law, there's deliverance, there's provision for food, there's provision for water, and finally, there's provision for maintaining your liberty. That's in obedience to the law through the power of Christ. Don't let anybody suggest that Sinai is a covenant of legalism. God never made a covenant of legalism with anybody. Now, we human beings are crafty. We can turn anything legalistic if we want through misunderstanding of God, through the idea of earning our own salvation for failing to enter into an intimate relationship of love. We can turn what's good bad. But at Sinai, at the base of the mountain, was the food that was provided and this mighty fountain that flowed. Now, I don't know about you, but I do like to study rivers. You know that mighty Colorado River that flows out of the mountains there, a thousand miles from here? There are years when it never makes it to the Gulf of Mexico. Actually, the little gulf there. That river dries up in the dirt because it's so used. The truth of the matter is, is that the amount of water needed to feed two, to, to satisfy, to slate the thirst of two million people and their animals is beyond our understanding. But the psalmist comments on it. Turn over to Psalm 75. Psalm 75. How much water? Psalm 78. Verse 15. It says, He split the rocks in the wilderness and He gave them abundant drink like the ocean depths. It may have been a while since you've read that. Why does it matter? It matters because this symbolism becomes an image of the grace of God. In John chapter 1, verse 14, it says that Jesus Christ came full of grace and truth. The grace at the base of the mountain was the fountain flowing. The truth at the top of the mountain was the law given. Those two things are completely combined in the imagery of a complete Christ who has the ability to both cleanse, the power to set free, and the desire to do so, and then the directive of how to live free. Take your Bibles and turn over to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. Paul comments on this rock. And there's an interesting statement about the rock that it's important for us to put our arms around. 1 Corinthians 10. I'm looking at verse 1. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud and they all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And they all ate the same spiritual food 
And they all drank from the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from a spiritual rock, which what? Followed them. Why did it follow them? Why didn't it lead them? We can say the cloud and the fire were doing that. Yes, indeed. They were on a 40-year detour, places they never should have been, scenes they never should have saw, experiences they never should have had. God didn't abandon them to become a non-people in the midst of that hiatus. God goes with them. And every day they have what they had at the base of Mount Sinai. That rock was Christ. Let there be no misunderstanding. You never get water from a rock. Never. Unless God ordains to change the physical structure of what he created. He can do it in the volume he wants to do it in. But the point is this. God has always followed his people into their problems, which has been a problem for God. When you jump into a snake pit, you expect to be bit. When you jump into a cesspool, you expect to get sick. God counted the cost before he made us. That's why before the foundation of the world, the plan was consistent with the heart of God. Love would not abandon those who rejected and resisted him. It would try again. Now, before I finish, I want to make sure that you understand you have the power to be like Jesus. I'm reading out the Desire of Ages, and I'm reading about the first 30 years of Christ's life. Jesus was the fountain of healing mercy for the world. You say, yeah, pastor, 35 miracles, seven of them on Sabbath. No, 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 that's not what it's talking about. He was the fountain of healing mercy for the world, but this is about a different time period. Semicolon. Jesus was the fountain of healing mercy for the world, semicolon. And through all those secluded years at Nazareth, his life flowed out in currents of sympathy and tenderness. She didn't say that for the last three and a half years he was the fountain of healing and mercy for the world. It's his whole life. And this is a statement grabbing the concept of flowing. The aged, the sorrowing, the sin burden, the children at play in their innocent joy, and the little creatures of the groves, and the patient beast of burden. Now let me go over the list again. And you say, well, yeah, pastor, nobody on that list needed healed. Oh, yeah? The aged. Well, it doesn't say they're sick. The sorrowing. No physical healing there. The sin burdened. Yeah. The children at play in their innocent joy. Doesn't even sound sad. The little creatures of the grove. So the wild animals. No, no callousness towards Jesus. Don't let your kids grow up killing things. And the patient beast of the burden. And here's how she ends the paragraph. All were happier for his presence. Now, I do want you to ask yourself a question. Have you been in the presence of God enough to where his healing touch can unleash the fountain he spoke of to the woman at the well, to where your presence could allow the tenderness and the sympathy to flow in rich currents? So here's how it works. Satan thought he had us. Satan figured, this is it. God will never be able to be happy again because I stole away his children. They can't give free if they want to. Satan had become blind himself. He didn't even know who God was. He had at one point in time, but he began to see God in a way that suited him that liberated him from looking at himself. And he didn't think that God would jump in and swim in our mess. 
And so finally, after three and a half years of Christ eluding him, he finally came to the place where he got one to betray him, one to deny him, Rome to agree with him, Herod to let it go, and the scribes and the Pharisees to finally have him in their, their grip. Those soldiers got him out to the site barely, flung him down on the cross member and pinned him with spikes. They set the tree up and watched his blood trickle slowly down his face, his back, his arms, his feet. They heard him cry out that he was thirsty. They watched the scribes and Pharisees mock him. They recognized the labor breathing. And finally, after three and a half hours of darkness where Christ was hidden from the ignominy and the, the, the insults of the ones he came to save, they saw the darkness around him part and they heard him cry out, it is finished. And it's as if the devil had a rod in his hand called a cross, smote the Lamb of God and thought he had done some, some fantastic fiendish deed, but what he did not know was that in smiting Christ, as the image of Exodus 17 says, he broke open the fountain of infinite love and it started gushing through the universe in a way nobody else had ever imagined before. You talk about irony, you talk about paradox, the Lamb of God by whom whose wounds we are healed is the smitten rock. But it is in the smiting of that rock that the fountains of the deep break open and the angel's sympathy for Lucifer is gone. And the Roman soldier declares, this was the Son of God. And that thief nailed next to him, recognized even earlier than that, this man is different. It is the presence of God that brings hope to the hopeless. Son, your sins are forgiven. Peter, healing in a look. Oh, I won't deny you, Jesus. Yes, you will. No, I won't. Yes, you will. Before the cock crows three times, you will. And when Jesus sees him standing by the fire, their eyes meet as the words are fresh off his lips. Peter is healed in a look, a look that says, I forgive you. And he rushes out of that courtyard back to Gethsemane and knows repentance like he's never known it before. The God who knew him so well and would participate in his absence of fidelity. Yes, friends. It's God's presence. You may not be delivered from the vicissitudes of this life. But if you want to be delivered from your fear and your uncertainty and your hopelessness and your despair, if your self-loathing is running you over today, you need to know something. Jesus will wander to the bottom of the bottom and bring you back up where you can see the light, which is a hope of a new man, a new woman, made in his image. Years ago, a story is told. It was told by Elizabeth McFadden in August 27, 1964, Adventist Review. Her daddy was A.W. Spaulding. He left a teaching position in college and took two years to be a self-supporting ministry. There might be somebody here today that God's calling to do the same thing. For two years, he went to the mountains of Appalachia. Left behind something that would have been comfortable and good. He was a self-supporting ministry. You read his storybooks and they encourage you today. Well, I want to tell you, he lived the story. He was there in Appalachia. Most of the places he went was on foot. He had three children. There was going to be a fourth. It just so happened that he knew the doctor was out of town, so he thought. So that night when his wife went into labor, 
He trudged over with his lantern to find the Appalachian midwife. It was five miles. Finally, she walked back in the lantern light. And as the night progressed, the problems got worse. Finally, he prayed this prayer. Dear Father, Thou didst bring us down here. We've tried to follow Thy will many times. We have failed, but we have always asked Thy forgiveness. Now, Father, I beg Thee, take care of her. Suddenly, he heard an unusual sound. He thought he could hear the muffled clump, clump of a horse. The sound came near. He went out to greet the visitor. Why, Dr. Smith, he explained, what brings you here so early in the day? He saw the lantern in the doctor's hands and realized that he must have gotten up before daylight. I couldn't sleep, replied the doctor. Something seemed to tell me to get up and saddle old Sam because I was needed somewhere. So I obeyed the impulse, and this is where old Sam has led me. Tell me, Arthur, is there anything wrong at your house? Friends, is there anything wrong at your house? God knew it. God knows it. God has always pursued his people in their problems. Otherwise, they'd have no deliverance. It doesn't matter if you've just discovered that you're worse than you thought you were. God sent you here, exclaimed Arthur Spaulding. Dr. Smith had lived 20 miles away. God had woken him in the night. There in the mountains of Georgia, a little Elizabeth Spaulding was born. Friends, nothing's ever changed. But I want something to change. I want what God wants, which is that this congregation would be so blessed and desirous of the presence of God that they could not come away but with the residual of heaven's light in their countenance and in their heart. Like Moses, that's for you too. It's for me. Take your hymn books out. I want you to look at this. We're not going to sing it just yet. We're getting close. But I want you to look at it on paper. Take your hymn books out. Open them up to hymn 125. Joy to the world. 125. Let's look at these verses. Joy to the world. The Lord has come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room. And heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ, while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains. Repeat the sounding joy. Friends, we're to repeat the sounding joy. Now the third verse. I'm going to tell you before I read the third verse. Two things I want you to remember. Number one, sin increases naturally. Do you hear me? It's like there's a huge harvest of sin that's growing on the face of this planet. And it's being fertilized daily by all the media outlets and some of our choices. Sin grows naturally, very fervently. Any of you that have gardened know that the carrots don't grow as fast as the other weeds. The second thing I want you to know before we read it is that for 30 years of Jesus' life, he was the fountain of healing through acts of sympathy and tenderness. He didn't heal broken bones or diseased nerves or diseased minds or deceived, diseased eyes or ears or shriveled hands or hunched over women or flu-sick children. He didn't do that in the 30 years. But he was still the fountain of healing and mercy through acts of sympathy and tenderness. Why does that matter? Because I'm supposed to be and you're supposed to be a fountain of sympathy and tenderness and thus a functionary, a tributary of the original source. Now, I don't ever want you to read the verse the same way. Here we go. Third verse. This is it. No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings what? Flow, friends. Think Horeb. 
Think the garden. Think the cross. Think fountain of tenderness and mercy. He comes to make his blessings flow. Think the depths of the ocean like Psalm 78 says. Far as the curse is found. And I love singing this last part of the third stanza. Repeat it. Far as the curse is found, friends. This is the glorious good news of God with us. It's the presence of Jesus that speaks peace to the human heart. Yes, the living know they'll die. But those who die in Christ know they'll live. Amen? Amen. Friends, this Christmas season, don't miss the opportunity to flow. I had somebody tell me a story recently. Somebody sold a car. They sold the car, signed the title, and over the period of the next few weeks, the person lost the title. So they write a letter back to the person who sold the car. And in the letter, they send a check for $100 for all the trouble it's going to cost the person to get another title. The person decided that they would not cash the check, but that they would replace it with a glow track tucked around the new title. My question to you is, do you think they'll read the glow track? <laughs> Friends, whether it's at work or school or play, whether it's the gas station or the grocery store, whether it's at the exercise arena or wherever you might be, you are now a part of the healing fountain full of sympathy and tenderness because the presence of Christ has tenderized your heart. And if it's not happened this morning, I'm inviting you to let him in. God with us. There is nothing more healing. Jesus didn't deliver the thief on the cross, did he? He just told him the same thing. He told the man, your sins are forgiven. Those weren't the exact words, I know. But you don't make it to heaven without your sins being forgiven. Friends, your sins are forgiven too. Let the healing flow. And if you feel like you're stuck in one, just draw near. And you might need a special deliverance. Maybe when we come to January, you might want somebody to pray over you. I had somebody testify to me that after being prayed over three days later, they experienced a measure of freedom spiritually that they had not had before. We're told to pray for each other. Strike the cross, open the fountain, that wherever the curse is, the fountain flows. God bless us. May we live this way. May we draw clear, near to that heavenly heart that wants to touch us and make us a fountain too.